So we've been studying the book of Acts together, uh, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. Um, studying the early church. I hope it's been a blessing to you. We are up to chapter 13. Pastor Bill preached last week on kind of the, the, the first couple of passages, first couple of verses on um, Paul and Barnabas' first missionary journey. We thought so this would be a great time to just take a break and do a, a series on the atonement as we approach uh, the Passion Week, Good Friday, and of course, Resurrection Sunday. And let me just say right up front, if you're new here, whenever we start a series, whether it's through books of the Bible or a series like this, the first sermon of the series usually is, and it is today as well, more information than application. There'll be some application, but um, there's some groundwork that we have to do as we begin to look at this series. That's why we're doing it in five parts. I'm going to try to even squeeze it in in five parts. So um, it kind of lays the foundation that's really important as we roll out this theme, the study of the atonements. The series I've wanted to do for a long time, and I think it's good and right to take a break from expository preaching through books of the Bible to look at a thematic, a thematic study, uh, a very important uh, a theme of Scripture uh, that permeates really all of your Bible. The word and the series is atonement. Actually, the word atonement is an Anglo-Saxon word, and you can pull it together and you can see what it means. It means at one meant atonement, to take two that was separated and to make them be at one, to live in harmony. The word atonement presupposes a separation or an alienation um, that needs to be overcome. And we'll see as we study the atonement that the atonement expresses relationships. And therefore, the atonement is closely tied to forgiveness, appeasement, reconciliation, The word atonement is in the Old Testament in many, many places. But in the New Testament, it's the Greek word katalatge, and it's it's usually translated reconciliation. Romans chapter 5, verse 11 says, We rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. The word permeates Scripture. In fact, in the New Testament, the concept, the theme, the understanding of atonement is one of the most foundational and fundamental concepts of all of Scripture and of our salvation. The atonement, just briefly explained as we roll it out over the next five weeks, can be explained as the work of God by the sacrifice of His Son on the cross, making amends, reconciling the separation and hostility that our sins have caused between Him, a holy God, and us sinful human beings, allowing Him to pardon us by His grace. That's a long explanation, I understand. We're going to break it down. So it should be no surprise that as Christians, we use the cross as a symbol of our faith, that we belong to Jesus Christ. It is absolutely central, central to our faith and to Christianity. James Denny said, the death of Christ is the central thing in the New Testament. Where there is no atonement at one meant, there is no gospel. John Murray writes, the union with Christ is really the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation, not only in its application, but also in its once-for-all accomplishment in the finished work of Christ. And finally, John Stott. If you want a book on the atonement and you're just interested in studying it, that's one book I highly recommend, John Stott. It's called The Cross of Christ. Great book. He wrote, The Christian community is a community of the cross. 
For it has been brought into being by the cross, and the focus of its worship is the Lamb once slain, now glorified. You know, the very word, English word crucial, comes from the Latin word crux, which means cross. Showing us that even our language, the reality that the cross is crucial, the cross is central to our faith. So I hope some of you here are wondering why. Why is it central to our faith? Well, that's what we're going to look at over the past five weeks at the atonement. And for me, as I study this theme, I, I look at the atonement like a diamond. Looking at it in all its glory and splendor from different angles and seeing its beauty. Or a prism and looking at it from different angles and seeing the, the magnificent colors. So we're going to study the work of Christ from different angles, the person and the work of Jesus. The words along the wall do some explaining of what that means. And you can look at that after, after the service and read what it says. And before we get started into our study, we're going to have some preliminary introduction. Then we're going to hit one thing today, and that's all. And then we'll come back next week. Let, let me tell you that there are different views of the atonement. Different than what I'm going to tell you the scripture teaches. I'm going to come from Scripture and tell you what it really means, but there are those, and uh, I just want to mention them, just in case you've heard these before. They're not biblical. They're not from Scripture. But this is what some people have said, that why Jesus did go to the cross. Why was he crucified? Some people say that Jesus was crucified because he was our example. Jesus' death didn't, didn't uh, pay the penalty for our sins, but was an example on how we should love God and trust God completely. Even to the point of giving your life. The example theory. Then there's the moral influence. People say Jesus didn't die as a penalty for our sins. But on the cross he was an example. On how to trust God. And, and how, how, how to see God. And how to uh, view God's love for us. And to influence us then to do the right thing. Look how much God loves you. Do the right thing with your neighbor. That's the moral influence. Then there's the ransom theory. People say that Jesus went to the cross. He died as a payment for sin, but he paid it to Satan. That we were in bondage to Satan and that Satan needed to be paid for the penalty of our sin. The problem with that is there's not one verse in all of the Bible that says that. And Ephesians chapter 5 verse 2 says that we ought to walk in love as Christ loved us, gave himself up for us as an offering and a sacrifice to God, as a fragrant aroma, sacrifice to God. And then there's a crazy thing called the governmental theory where Jesus went to the cross. God really, you know, he didn't really need to go there and, and he just wants to show that, you know, God is holy and we're not and, and we should keep God's law. That's all the different ways in which the atonement's been explained. But the question remains, what does the scripture say about the work of Christ on the cross? Unfortunately, in our day and in our culture, it's a fading topic. And some churches don't want to talk about blood, don't want to talk about atonement, don't want to talk about Jesus' death. But it's all over Scripture. Some of you, I mentioned this last week, went to see the movie, The Son of God. We're going to show a clip of, of one of the movies of, of the crucifixion of Christ here on Good Friday. So no matter what you see on a movie screen, doesn't really explain to the reason why Jesus had to die. That comes from God's word. 1 Corinthians 15, 3. Listen to this. For I deliver to you, Paul talking, as of first importance, not second, but very first importance, what I also received, that Christ died 
for our sins according with all the scripture. It's talking about the Old Testament scripture. That little word for has huge implications. For is the transition from the fact that he died to the theological importance. First the event, Jesus died. I'm here to tell you he died. In fact, the soldiers threw uh, threw a spear through his side. Blood and water flowed from him. The executioner said he's dead. They told Pilate, you can give his body up. They were professionals at it. And they, they also said he was dead. Jesus died, historical fact. For, implication, theological meaning, our sins. There's no right understanding of Jesus. There's no gospel apart from the truth of Scripture, which teaches, I'll give you a $5 word, the penal substitutionary atonement. You're going to hear that from me this next five weeks. Let me break it down. It's really simple. Penal means that there is a penalty for sin. God told Adam and Eve, if you eat of the tree, you shall surely die. That's the penalty. Paul says the wages for sin, the wages, that which you get paid for, for sinning is death. That's the penalty. Death is not only physical death, it's spiritual death. It's eternal separation from God. So when Jesus went to the cross, he paid penal substitutionary atonement. He paid the penalty for our sin. But he was also our substitute, clearly in Scripture. He was our substitute. Jesus went in our place endured what we should have endured. Jesus suffered as we should have suffered. He died as our substitute. Isaiah chapter 53 makes it very clear. The Lord has laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. There's those who say that Jesus is just a decent moral teacher, an enlightenment example of how we should live. We don't believe that. That's not only who he is. We believe he is God who lived a life we could not live, who died the death we should have died, and who gives the gift we cannot earn. So we see on the cross, the scripture teaches us, Jesus reconciling and forgiving eternally and ultimately as our substitute in our place for our sins. Penal substitutionary atonement. So that's why this this series like got me fired up because it's about Jesus, right? I never ask you a question, what's the answer, folks? Jesus, right? So I'm excited about this, and my hope is, as we look through this series, each week we gather, and especially at the end as we celebrate the resurrection on Sunday morning, it is my hope, it's my, it's my, it's my prayer, that we will be more deeply devoted to Jesus. Our souls will be overwhelmed with gratitude, and our hearts welling up with love and affection of and to Jesus. Okay? So if, if you're taking notes and you're just wondering where we're going, let me just tell you that... First of all, the first sermon today will be Jesus, our sacrifice. Second one will be Jesus, our substitute. We'll look at the day of atonement in particular, Yom Kippur. Jesus, our Passover redeemer. Jesus, our reconciler and justifier. And then on the fifth Sunday, we're going to see uh, Jesus, our expiation and propitiation. Okay, and we're going to break that down. If you've never heard those terms before, you know, don't, we're going you know, to talk about that. We're going to look at that together. Hebrews chapter 10, as we get started, Jesus our sacrifice. Hear the word of the Lord. Every priest, talking about Old Testament. We'll talk a lot of Old Testament today. Every priest stands daily at his service, doing what he was called to do, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices over and over and over. 
which can never take away sins. But, verse 12, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he, Jesus, sat down at the right hand of God. Sitting down is, is, is a picture of the finished work of Christ. Because you know what it says? See what it says? The priest stands daily. He can't sit because it's never done. Jesus offers himself as a sacrifice and he sits down. It's over. It's over. So here's our outline for today. That's our verse. Here's our outline. The personhood of God, the problem of sin, and then the perfect sacrifice. The purpose sacrifice. Now, the personhood of God. In order to understand the atonement, we're going to go back a little bit. That's why we're not going to cover it in one day. Don't be afraid. I'm going to Genesis 1, and some of you are thinking we're going to be here a really long time. Uh, we're going to start in Genesis 1. We're not going to go very far. Uh, and I, I'm really going to cut, you know, we're going to look at it more in the next few weeks. Although, although, I will tell you that Bill and I were talking today. And we counted his sermon. And I got like 15 extra minutes from his last week. Okay, just, just making it. Uh, in order to truly grasp the work of, of Christ on the cross, we must first understand the relationship between God and mankind. Okay, we have, to, we have to open up in Genesis 1. We see right there in Genesis 1 the work of the triune God creating the universe. 1-1 of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the word created, bara, uh, speaks of a divine, a special activity of God alone who creates out of nothing into all that we see. And the Bible opens up in that very phrase in the very word Elohim, which is the plural noun, that God is an infinite eternal, personal, triune God who creates out of nothing. The, the Elohim is plural, as I said, not only speaks of the Father, Son, and Spirit, the Trinity, the triunity of God, but it speaks of his, his majesty, it speaks of his omnipotence in creation. God is revealed right in Genesis 1-1 as a personal creator, a self-existent one, one who thinks and creates. I am the Lord thy God, there is no other. Okay, verse two, the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. That word hovering is used for eagle who protects their young, protects their eggs, hovering over it. So the Hebrew, you, if, you, if you were Hebrew and you read this, it would, it would show that God uh, is not only the, the personal creator God, but he's not some impersonal force. He's a personal being who is, who is hovering, who is loving, who is caring, who is preparing to create. And then what happens? God speaks, let there be. The work of God. God the Father, let there be. The, uh, excuse me, God the Father, beginning, it says in Genesis 1, in the beginning, God he speaks, there's Jesus who's the word who became flesh, and there's the spirit of God hovering. You see the work of the triune God in creation. Then when you turn to chapter 2 in Genesis, it says, let us make man in our image. Who's he talking to? Father, Son, and Spirit together in harmony, love, and unity creating man and woman in what we call the Imago Dei. It's in Latin for the image and likeness of God. Again, it's not the impersonal creating the personal or the in, uh, you know, unintelligent one creating, uh, creating intelligent ones. No, it's the personal God creating mankind. Uh, chapter 1, verse 27 says, God created man in his own image. 
In the image of God, he created them, male and female. The Imago Dei means by virtue of our creation that we are created by God and that we have value, dignity, and worth. All life, unborn or born, has value, dignity, and worth. God then gives man responsibilities. He says, I want you to, re, uh, to, to represent me, to reflect me to all the world like no other creature can. God gives them responsibility to be good stewards over the earth in Genesis uh, 2. I, mean, I need you to see this. God is a personal being, not a force, but a relational being, self-aware, self-conscious, and, and creating personal beings. I say all this because God is a personal God and we have a personal relationship with him. That's the way we were created. Now, I am not saying, I am not saying that God created us in his image and likeness with value and worth so that he can have someone to play with. That's not what I'm saying. Okay? God did not create the world because he was lonely, as some would say. Oh, he just created us because he, you know, he was sitting up there all by himself. He created us and he just sits back. We worship him and he feels better. That's not what the scriptures teach. God was and is and always will be full in himself. God did not create out of emptiness, but out of fullness and goodness. But God created us with the ability to know him, to love him, to obey him, being able to worship him. Relationship. And one of the terms that the scripture uses about this relationship that God has with his creation is the word covenant. If you've been here a while, you've heard me talk about covenant. Covenant is about relationships. And the foundation of our relationship with God is covenant. Is covenant. God is a covenant-making God. We're supposed to be a covenant-making people. Folks, listen. Love flows out of the covenant. That's the problem with marriages. We think love, that our marriages are built on love, is built on covenant. And out of the covenant flows love. God is a covenant-making God. We're supposed to be a covenant-making people. And all the Old and New Testament language about covenant is about relationship. It's commitments and oneness with, with the one you have came together, bound together in a solemn oath. In the Old Testament, if you read about covenants, there were agreements on certain terms. And, and they were uh, used to bind one another in relationships. They would get together. They would swear oaths. Going into a covenant wasn't easy. And it wasn't taken lightly in Scripture. Sometimes there was an offering, a sacrifice. The cutting of a covenant. Literally in Hebrew, covenant means to cut. To cut. When entering into it, now this may sound strange, it sounds strange to me too, but in the ancient days, they would many times take an animal, cut it in two pieces, they would put it side by side, after they had this agreement, they would put the pieces of animal side by side, and they would walk between the animal. As if to say, if I don't keep my covenant with you, let what happens to this animal happen to me. It was an agreement. It was bound by cutting animals, walking in between that. We find that in Jeremiah 34. In that passage, the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar, is fighting against Jerusalem. The people in Jerusalem know they're going to be taken captive, but they recognize that they haven't kept their covenant. They haven't kept their covenant with God. They've been unfaithful to him. And so the leaders call all the people together and says, you know what, we're going to be taken captive. We, we've sinned against God, and now we need to renew our covenant with him. And they take the animal, they slaughter it, they walk in between it to say, God, we want a restored relationship with you. We want to be one with you again. We want to obey your commands. We want to follow your covenant. Of course, like the rest of us who do that, 
They didn't follow through. In fact, later on in Jeremiah 34, it says God speaks to them because they still rebelled. Because you walked between these pieces and you broke the covenant, I'm going to do to you what you symbolize in the slaughter of those animals. You will die and the birds of prey will descend upon you. And God sends in the army to destroy them and take them captive. There would be witnesses. Think of the marriage covenant because there would be feasts too. So you have oaths, you have cutting of the covenant, uh, covenant. you have um, um, feasts. When a husband and wife would be in covenant together, they would have a feast. Sometimes it lasts a whole week. I've got four daughters. I, I don't want to last a whole week. That'd be a long party. But they would do that. They'd have a feast together. And what was the feast for? To celebrate this new relationship and covenant. It's about relationships. The most important covenant of Scripture is the covenant of grace. God had the covenant of grace with Noah. What did Noah bring to the table? He was a drunk. If you read, the, if you read that passage, he brought nothing. They find him after the ship lands, man, the boat, he's drunk and naked out in a cave. Uh, if you don't believe me, read your Bible. He brought nothing. But God made a unilateral, unconditional covenant with him and said, I'll never destroy the earth. Not because you're holy, not because you're right, and not because you're drunk, naked by the cave, but because I love you, I make a covenant with you. God makes a covenant with Abraham. Unconditional covenant. What did Abraham bring to the table? A lot of you think, well, Abraham went up to the mountaintop. Yeah, he pimped his wife out twice too. We don't talk about that. It's in the Bible, read it. He brought nothing. And yet Genesis chapter 15, God cuts a covenant. Animals slaughtered in between, and you know who walks through the animal? God does. Signifying to Abraham and to the rest of us that it's a one-sided government because God is not going to curse himself. He can't. He's holy. He's pure. He's good. And he walks through the animal saying, I've made a covenant. It's in my name. By my promise, basically nothing's going to stop that. And what we see over and over again in the Old Testament is the gracious covenant, the gracious loving covenant of God, the continual pursuit of relationships with his creation. But God spoke to Jeremiah and said that someday there'll have to be a new covenant. There'll have to be a new covenant. There's going to be a new way to have a relationship than the old ways. There's going to be something new. Jeremiah chapter 31. I think I have it up there. Good. Chapter 31. Jeremiah speaking on behalf of God. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day, listen, on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. You know, you know the problem, according to Jeremiah, with the covenant, is sin. The people who were delivered by the hand of God as they were taken from Egypt sinned against the covenant. They've broken God's laws. The covenant they broke was not the unconditional covenant that was given to Noah or to Abraham. It was the conditional covenant of the Mosaic law that God gave to Israel to follow. It was the Mosaic law that he's pointing to that they broke. Which brings me to my second point. The problem of sin. 
Jeremiah 31 says there's going to be a new way, a new way to have a relationship because of sin, and sin always separates, folks. If there's one thing you take away, sin always separates. Even before the Israelites violated God's law, we see the sin of Genesis 3 and the effects of sin with Adam and Eve, right? Genesis 1 and 2, this picture is a beautiful, beautiful creation, this, this perfect, idyllic world functioning as the world should function, God's people, God's place, God's loving care. All of life for Adam was a, a, a time of, of worship to his God. Before sin entered the world, God met them. God, they were dependent on God to meet their foundational needs of love, of worth, of acceptance, of value. The three, if you read Genesis 1 and 2 and part of 3, the three of them were walking together in the cool of the garden. Worship in paradise, experiencing the full contentment and satisfaction and fulfillment, being satisfied in relationship with their God. Shalom. Spiritual, psychological, emotional, relational peace. But Adam's covenant was conditional. God told him, obey or you will die. He failed and he rebelled against God. Hosea speaks of Adam's covenant in in Hosea 6. Adam had everything on this planet to have, even his new naked wife. He still sinned and rebelled against God. And we all do. Life was good. And then sin entered the world. And it separated. And if you remember the story, they ran from God. There was a deep tear of the soul as they experienced for the first time fear and shame. Life was meant to live in relationship with God, relationship with community, but sin separated them. It it rips at our souls. It separates us from our God, and sin separates us from each other. But God was good. Even though Adam failed miserably, God, in his mercy, instituted the covenant of grace, the unilateral, one-sided covenant of promise. Remember it in Genesis 3.15, in the midst of chaos and, and, and darkness and curse, God speaks life. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The first gospel. Proto-evangelium, the, the first gospel being preached. Genesis, excuse me, Galatians 3 and 4 says that seed, that offspring is the Lord Jesus Christ. Although he will be harmed, he will crush the head of Satan. Satan will bite him, but Jesus will destroy him. Ultimately, he will have, be triumphant. So rather than leave us in a mess, God says, you know what, I'm going to save you. I'll repair the, the mess you made. Folks, that's the good news. That's the promise. That's the covenant of grace. And while the whole Bible's trajectory is, is, is toward this good news, this, this covenant of grace, this person and work of Jesus Christ, it also speaks a lot about the utter failure of man to continue to follow and obey God's law. God called Israel out of slavery. God sent them into the promised land. God gave them the Mosaic law and said, this is the law that you shall follow. We will have relationship. You keep the law. I will be your God. And the law was given to to Israel to reflect God's holiness. It's not just the law. It's a reflection of who he is. The law also reflected how sinful they were. You can't read. If you read Matthew's gospel, if you read the gospel according to Matthew, you read the, the Sermon on the Mount, and you walk away and say, I can do that, you've read it wrong. 
God gives us the law. God gave them the law, I should say. And it was to show them how dependent they were on his grace. It marked them as God's chosen people. You will be my people. This will be our relationship. You will follow this covenant. You will show the world my glory, goodness, and value, and worth to everyone in my greatness. But the Bible says they didn't keep the law. The Bible says in Matthew, excuse me, Romans 5.12. I don't have that up there, but Romans 5.12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all have sinned. So there's a problem. It's called sin. And, and, and some of you maybe have never heard that term before. I don't know. Or maybe some of you come up with, I don't know what you're thinking when I say sin. Let me, let me just give you a, a simple, good, traditional uh, definition of sin. Sin is any failure to conform, obey, the moral law or the moral standard of God. This is done through sins of commission. Okay? Sins of commission is doing what God said not to do, and we do it anyway. The sins of omission, not doing what God said to do. You could cheat, you can steal and lie. God says don't do those things. And God says love others, show mercy, show justice, and we don't do those either. So it's what we do and what we don't do. The Bible says in John 1, 1 John 3, 4, that sin is lawlessness. It includes our words, our deeds, our thoughts. Not so much on the outside as it is in the motive of the heart. Right? It's not living up to God's clear standard. God gave us the standard of the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament as he gave the Mosaic Law. But the Bible says, and your life experience says it as well, just ask your wife or your husband, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. None of us are perfect. None of us live up to the perfection. None of us are pure. But listen, sin is not just simply breaking the moral law of God. Sin is breaking the heart of God, okay? Sin is not just breaking the moral law of God. Sin is breaking the heart of God. He's a person. There's relationship. If you're married 30, 40, 50 years, and the one you're married to runs to another person, holds in the arms of someone else, goes and and, and breaks that covenant, rejects you, leaves you vulnerable, find them in somebody else. That's hurt. That's really deep hurt. But that's a glimpse of what happens when we sin against God because it's personal. He created us to have relationship. And that kind of hurt, suffering, shows a little bit, a little insight on what sin is to our creator. It's not just a crime. It's treason. It's not just breaking the law. It's betrayal. I want you to see that this morning. As we deal with the atonement, we've got to deal with sin. The second thing you need to understand about sin, very important as we deal with sin, uh, the problem with sin, I've said this before, I'm going to say it again, there's some new people here, Seren Kierkegaard, he's a Danish philosopher in his book, uh, The Sickness Unto Death, said this, most people think of sin as primarily as breaking divine rules. He says, but according to the commandments, sin is not just the doing of bad things, but the making of good things into ultimate things. Sin, he says, is building your identity on anything besides God. Like Adam and Eve and everyone after that, we run from our creator and we create these little gods uh, that we bow down and we worship. Not literal God, not literal bowing down, but, but we have these idols in our lives. So when we lie at the end of the day, what's really happening is we want someone to think something different about us. We want someone to like us. We want to hide things in our life. Why? Because people become our little gods, our little idols, and so we try to impress them. We don't believe the gospel, what the gospel says about us. Martin Luther, the great reformer, talking about the Ten Commandments, said this. 
the breaking of the commandments is really breaking of the first commandment. So if you want to break all the other commandments, don't do this, don't do that, don't do this. He says you really have to do is break the first one, have no other gods before me. He said if you keep the first commandment, you'll keep all the other commandments. Think about it, why do we steal? Because at the end of the day, we want something we think we need and we have to have and we take. We lie, we cheat because of our identity that's twisted. We break the law and the things that we run after becomes our own God. And we violate the first commandment. Have no other God before me. We all do it. I think it was John Calvin who said, our hearts are idol, idol factories. In order to get to the other commandments, we have to trample the first one. To have no other gods before us. And that's idolatry. Idolatry is not just one of many sins. Idolatry, I believe, is the root of sin. It's like a tree with bad fruit. We try to clean up the outside and we don't get to the real issue of the problem. We do things like murder, steal, and dishonor our parents. We do this because we have created little idols, little functioning saviors, something we look to in the place of God to find that love that we need, that unconditional love, that security, that fulfillment, our rest, our commitment, our sense of importance, our sense of value, our sense of of personhood outside than our relationship with the person of God. Dr. Tim Keller writes this. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know that I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. Anything more fundamental than God to your happiness, meaning in life, and identity is an idol, end quote. We need to see sin from that perspective. That whatever is prominent, whatever is the most prominent, whatever is the most preeminent in your life, whatever centers you center your life around, that in which you worship is your idol. Not falling down, but it's the controlling factor. It's the thing that motivates you. It's the things that arouses you. It's the things that attracts your attention. It could be good things become idols, become bad things. Whether it's money, whether it's wife, whether it's your children, whether it's your education, whether it's your looks. If that's what is your center, if that's what you have to have in order to feel value, significant worth, that is your idol. That is my idol. And, and family, listen. It's not a matter of what you worship. We're all worshipers. That's the issue is not who and what. The issue is who and what you worship, not if you worship. Every one of us, me too, is pouring glory, is, is spending time, is sacrificing to something. And when Christ is not the center, then that is idolatry. We are persistently giving ourselves away, whether it's our money, our time, to a direction. And because of sin, and all of us are sinners, we are bent on worshiping things that have been created. Romans 1, not the creator. Dorothy Sayers said this. I've said this once before, too. I love this definition. She said, sin is the radical interior dislocation of the heart. When she says, because she's saying that when a bone is dislocated, I had a hip replacement. So many other places in my body weren't right. When, when that bone is not centered, then everything else is crooked. Everything else wreaks havoc on the rest of my body. And the human heart that is centered on something other than Christ, something other than the relationship with God, it, it, it's, it wreaks havoc in your soul. And brings judgment on you as well. And me. 
Sin is personal. Sin is universal. Sin is serious. And sin is punishable. Brings me to my last point. The perfect sacrifice. Now the need to deal with this issue, this broken relationship, the need to deal with this sin problem, separation from God, um, seems almost innate in all of us. You see it all throughout Scripture. Sacrifices actually go back to Adam and Eve. It goes, it goes back that far. Sin enters the world. There's shame, there's, there's shame and there's sin and there's brokenness and there's separation. Their eyes were open. They knew they were naked. And what's the first thing they did? They sewed fig leaves to cover themselves. They tried to deal on their own with their own pre-described manner to cover their sin and, sin and shame. And we have been, figuratively speaking, doing that ever since, trying to do what we think to cover that. Instead of running to God on his terms, by his pre-described plan of atonement, we try to fix our own sin, our own mistakes, trying to be our own saviors. And the Bible says that after Adam and Eve didn't get very far with the, with the, with the sowing of the fig leaves, God shows up and in grace and mercy sacrifices and takes the skins of an animal and covers them, as if to say, you can't do this. You're kidding yourself. I will step in, and I will cover your shame. I will cover nakedness, pointing them to the bigger and greater sacrifice. To the bigger and greater sacrifice. God in his grace cover them. Then we see in chapter 4, Cain and Abel about... We're, we're sacrificing. Uh, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Job all sacrificed before the sacrificial law was given in Leviticus. Now, there's one last thing I want to talk about, and I figured I'd wait to the end so that you're really hungry, because I want to talk about blood. People don't want to talk about blood in the church. Some Bibles actually have the word taken out of it. We don't want to talk about blood. We don't want to talk about suffering. We don't want to talk about blood. The Bible is a Bible with lots of blood. If you read your Bible, the real Bible, you're going to read 300 times in the Old Testament about sacrifices, bloodshed by death, by violence. The temple had blood flowing from it. Blood was shed when, uh, in the Passover and when Exodus in the Passover. Later sacrifices were done by the priest that were given a direct protocol by God on how to do that. And Israel would sacrifice animals daily both animals really and, and, and wheat and barley, but they were to sacrifice animals. And I'm going to get into that as the, as the you know, time goes on. But I want you to see this week, and what I want to, to do is, is share with you the reason. I know some of you thinking, man, all these animals being slaughtered, man, some sort of cruel, cruelty to animals, right? As you eat your hamburger today, think about that. But anyway, that's injustice, that's pain, that's suffering, that's evil, and that's gross. Yeah, yep, so is our sin. It's horrifying, it's, it's shocking. Yeah, yep. Blood sacrifice, animals being tortured, cut, gross. Yeah, horrifying, yeah. Shocking, absolutely. We realize how shocking and, and ugly and gross our sin is before God. And so the holy and righteous one says, this is what it looks like to me, your sin the way you treat one another, the way you treat me is horrifying, it's disturbing, it's troubling, it, it's evil. See it like I see it. And this happened over and over, man. The blood was flowing from the temple. But what you see, and I need you to see this in the Old Testament, is not some impersonal force of nature 
that they're, they're placating, that they want to just calm down before, you know, you erupt volcanoes. We're going to get a virgin and throw her over the cliff to satisfy the gods. That's paganism. That's not the Bible. That's not the God of the Bible. Here we see the true God in love and grace initiating through the blood sacrifice to restore relationships. God did not leave us after our sin sitting on his throne saying, you screwed up, you ran away, you hid, go find your way back home, let me know when you get there. That's not what he said. He initiated atonement. He initiated the sacrifice for relationship with his creation. The Bible says that God cannot look and is angry at sin. That may bother some of you. We're going to have a whole sermon on the wrath of God. I can't wait. Okay, but the Bible says that he cannot look on evil. He can't look at evil. And the atoning sacrifice was given to us by God to deal with our sin and the separation at one meant. John Calvin says the father, atonement means the father wants his children back. Okay, and what people say is this is this the story of Israel is just the ancient gods of paganism. It's just the same bloody story. It's just the same bloody mess. It's just a different God. You know, all the primitive cultures and societies that were built on this placating and they they talk about different ways in which there's there's um, uh, they both look alike. Those pagan gods and the God of Israel, they're not the same. They're not the same. Greek mythology like Homer, Iliad in the B, uh, 8 or 9 BC wrote about human sacrifices to, to appease the gods of the Greek gods. Same story, bloody sacrifice, different god. No, that's not the god of the Bible. That is not the god of Israel. What you have is a living god who's spoken a way to reconcile sinners to himself. God spoke and made it very clear what needs to be done. He establishes the atonement as a means to restore, to reconcile, and to maintain relationships with his people. The word atonement's all in the Old Testament, and, and many times in the noun, it's used as a substitute, a bloody substitute. Sometimes we're going to talk about this. It means ransom. Sometimes it's talking about the place where the sacrifice was being done. But for today, I want to see how God has provided that sacrifice. If you have a Bible, I hope you do, turn to Leviticus chapter 11, verse 17. It explains for us. Very important verse to understand the blood sacrifices and how it can forgive sin and reconcile sinners. Leviticus 17, 11 says this. For the life of the flesh, the life of the body, life of the flesh, is in the blood. I, God speaking, have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Sacrifice of atonement by the life. Here we see that we don't, we don't make it up ourselves. We don't come with our own conceived notions. God has given to us a way in which we can approach a holy God. Listen, sin is dirty. Sin is ugly. And God's like, you can't come to me dirty and sinful. There needs to be a cleansing. There needs to be a sacrifice. And I've given you the blood to do that. That's what he's saying. So we see that God in grace revealed to us atonement because sin is a serious matter. Sin by its very nature threatens life because it's a treason against the author of life. So it's very serious. And Leviticus 17 says first that blood is a symbol of life. It goes back to Noah. Don't eat, don't eat that meat that has blood in it because it's the lifeblood. So, so there is a symbol of life in the blood. There, there is life in the blood. 
Secondly, blood makes atonement not only because the life of the creature is in the blood, but it's the bloodshed. It's not just life that is symbolic or representative in the blood, but it's the killing. It's the death of a life that makes atonement. Life ending. One life is forfeited, another life is sacrificed instead. That's what atonement is. And the Bible is clear. There is no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. But the scriptures also teach us in the Old Testament, as the, as the Jewish people and the priesthood would continually sacrifice, we'll talk about the different sacrifices another day, they would practice, they would, they would do their sacrificial atonement. It was clearly, clearly, folks, listen to me, I got two more minutes, clearly shown in scripture that the blood of animals would never and would be totally insufficient to truly take away sins, okay? Hebrews chapter 10, verse 3 makes it very clear. But in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins. He's talking about the priest who would go daily every year. For it is impossible, it says in verse 3, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Now follow me. Why is that? Why did God give them all the sacrifice? Why did God give them the blood? Why did God give them the sacrifice? Why did God describe the atonement and then find out it was never good enough? Because Jesus is the better and greater sacrifice. You see, there was a lack of identity between the offering itself and the one who was doing the offering. We're going to talk about this next week. The priest would lay hands on the animal and confess their sins. It was symbolic of the transfer of guilt and sin onto the animal. And he would lay his hands. But it was a shadow, it was a foreshadow of the transferring of guilt. In fact, we'll see that the the animal had to be spotless and perfect, pointing to Jesus. You see, Jesus, in his incarnation, identified with us in every way without, without sin. This whole idea of sacrificial uh, atonement in the Old Testament pointing in a symbolic way to the fact that the offering had to be human and it had to be perfect because the sin, because the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. It pointed to Jesus who is a greater offering and at the incarnation took on humanity. He identified, lived without sin and only he alone could atone for our sins. Look what Hebrews says, chapter 10 again. Christ comes into the world and says, sacrifice and offering you have not desired but a body. But a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and in sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure, Lord. Then I said, Jesus talking, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as is written of me in the scroll of the book. Hebrew again, chapter 10. Every priest stands daily at the service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifice. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God. Family, listen. It was pointing. It could never take away sin because there was no identity with that animal. But when Jesus took on flesh and bones, becomes human, he identifies with our humanity and therefore his blood that was shed identifies with us yet without sin. So he's perfect. He's the spotless lamb of God. He He sheds his blood for us and only he can make atonement for our sins. That's why all the other people who were crucified on a Roman cross did not atone for anyone's sin. Only Jesus was perfect. Only Jesus was man and God. Only Jesus can atone for man's sin. Bulls and goats and lambs could not do it. It only pointed to them. Because Jesus, both God and man, 
He can atone through his sinless life, his substitutionary death on the cross. And that's why the Bible, listen, is so different than pagan gods. Who would have ever thought that? Who would have ever made that up? Uh, 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 They say these ancient gods, bloodthirsty gods, give us a human sacrifice. That's not the gospel. The gospel is that God himself would pay his own debt. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. That's the life-changing, earth-shattering, world-changing truth about the atonement. He wasn't demanding from us. He did it himself. He did it himself. The cross is the self-substitution of God. God himself and Jesus Christ paying the price. The only way to deal with cosmic sin, the only way to deal with with cosmic debt, we're going to talk about that in detail too, common uh, cosmic bondage, is for the God of the cosmos to come and to sacrifice himself and pay the ransom to set us free. Ernest Gordon, some of you may know him, he's a British soldier. World War II, captured by the Japanese, was made to uh, work with thousands of others, what's called the Death Railroad. Maybe some of you saw the movie in the River Kwai in Thailand, Southeast Asia. Listen to this story as the band comes up. Listen, during the war, this man, Ernest Gordon, during the war was forced to work the railroad It's been said that as the men were captured and tortured that five men died every mile of this railroad that they were forced to put in. He would say later in his years that they were treated worse than animals. It got so bad, he said, that men were at each other's throats. The conditions were so bad, these poor prisoners were beaten and tortured and and would die every day. Death was everywhere. He said existence was so miserable, it was survival of the fittest. Then one day, then one day, a shovel was missing. A shovel was missing. And in the book, this is what he writes. The day work ended, the tools were being counted as usual. As the party was about to be dismissed, the guard shouted that a shovel was missing. The guard insisted that someone had stolen it, and of course this was a very serious offense because one may have used to attempt to escape. Striding up and down the rank, The men and the guard ranted and raved, working himself into a fury. Screaming in broken English, he demanded that the guilty one step forward to take his punishment. No one moved. The guards raged higher and higher in violence. Then you shall die. Then you shall die, he shrieked. And to show that he meant what he said, he cocked his rifle and put it on his shoulder and aimed at the first man in the rank, prepared to shoot everyone one at a time. At that moment, the soldier stepped forward from the Argyle Regiment, stiff and at attention and said calmly, I did it. The guard unleashed all his whipped up anger and hatred and beat this prisoner with his fist, with his gun, and still the guy stood there until the blood was flowing down his face. His calm silence seemed to goad the guard even more. Raising his rifle in the barrel, the guard lifted it up high and busted him in the head and his skull and the man dropped to the ground without moving. He writes, and though it was perfectly clear the man was dead, the guard continued to beat him and stopped only when he was exhausted. The men of the work detail picked up the comrade's body, marched back to the camp. When the tools were recounted again at the guardhouse, it turned out that the shovel was not missing after all. End quote. They were saved by his blood. Jesus is our true and greater sacrifice who shed his blood. Not for an onlooking innocent soldier, but for the guilty, all of us, On the cross, we see Jesus, the perfect and innocent, dying 
Not just for a few in the camp, but his love, his gracious love for those who rebel against him as we have done. His, 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 his enemies, it says in the Bible. Jesus is not just the greater sacrifice. Jesus is the greater covenant. Jesus is the greater covenant. The blood of animals could never suffice. That covenant has been replaced with the new. God alone can atone for sins, and it was in Jesus Christ that he has, wants a relationship with you here this morning. He laid down his life as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. His blood sacrifice saved us from sin and death and hell and wants to have relationship with us. Not through the old covenant, through the new covenant. The blood, the bread, represents the body was broken, the blood that was shed. Jesus said on the night in which he was betrayed, he took the cup of wine and he said, drink of it all of you. For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. He's the greatest sacrifice. He went and died in your place. He's the greater covenant. His blood was shed so that you can have life. Do you believe that? That's what the cross is all about. Now, the band's going to play. We're going to take communion. Uh, If you have never taken communion here before, we're just going to spend time responding to, to the message that has been preached. We're going to respond to Christ. We're going to come to Jesus, who is our perfect sacrifice, who is our covenant. Maybe you've never trusted Christ. Today's the day you're going to take communion as a believer in Jesus, trusting that he died for your sin, he rose from the grave. He dies an atoning sacrifice for your sins. But maybe you're here and you're a believer and there's something you need to get right with God. All that he's done for you has compelled you not, not to just see him as our example, but to see him as our atoning sacrifice. So the band's going to play, confess your sin, repent of your sin. It means turn from your sin, and then come up when you're ready and celebrate the Lord's Supper. This table is for every Christian. If you're not a believer and you're here just wondering, and we're glad you're here, sit back, enjoy the music, talk with God, and uh, we'll talk with you after the service. This is a family meal. Come. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace and mercy toward us. Thank you for the sacrifice of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for the atoning work died for all our sins, our motives, our our misdeeds, our actions, and things we should do, things we haven't done. Father, we confess them to you. We repent of our sins and we turn and trust you, Lord. So let us respond in faith. Let us respond with hearts of gratitude and thanksgiving for all that you've done for us. You met us where we could never have done anything about, and you met us at the place of the cross. And we thank you for that, and we pray in Jesus' good name. Amen.